welcome to episode 46 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. Today, my guest is Sam Chupp, co-designer of Wraith the Oblivion, Changeling the Dreaming, and the writer of The Book of Nod. So, hey, Sam, how's it going? Daniel, it's good to hear from you. Good to talk to you, finally. Yeah, we've been uh, setting this up for, must be, it must be a couple of months now, and it's a little bit of a Christmas gift to myself, actually, because I've got lots of uh, questions to ask um, and some areas to go into regarding the, the storyteller system, and, and as I said, it's going to be a, a present for me uh, before, uh, before Christmas. So just to see a little bit of background, I know you've got your own podcast, and uh, you've been on a number of other ones, so we'll just quickly sort of dash over a couple of these, and, and just so people can get a feeling for, you know, where you're at now in role-playing and what you've done in the past. So um, how long have you been a role-player? Since I was eight. Right. And I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm well into my 40s now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's been, uh, I remember getting my first player's handbook for e- as an Easter present. Right. It was the advanced, advanced D&D player's handbook with black uh, cover with the uh, the demon looking thing on the yeah, with, front. The, with the jewels being prodded of its eyes. Yes, right. yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> and you know, we all we talk about versions of D anD D as if they were scholarly. You know, they were like found in the Dead Sea in a cave somewhere mm-hmm. um, because <laughs> they all have some sort of different. There's a lot of differences. Yes, uh, in in those versions. But, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about that, and also with the. Um, whether you like the term or not, the old school Renaissance or Renaissance, yes. um, and sort of the discussion of which edition it is that you're uh, you're playing, it actually makes a bit of difference. I think the the box set that I've got, I've got the Moldvay um, uh, edited version, um, but I only sort of got that uh, relatively recently. My my first book was the uh, was the Dungeon Master's Guide for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I actually bought that one. I sort of paid that off over a few months. Um, when I was pretty r- relatively young, anyway. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that was my first my first book. So okay, so you got um, the player's handbook when you were eight years old, and, and did, did you find it confusing without the Dungeon Master's Guide? Um, you know, I did, but uh, you know, a friend down the street was one of those uh, divorced children who right. uh, who mom buys him everything. Oh uh, right, yes. Uh, and so he got. Like all the like, as soon as I started playing, he he realized, oh wow, I like this, and so he got all the books, mm. and I could go and look at them, and then eventually one by one, I I started to buy them. But ultimately, uh, the, if you think about it, the Dungeon Master's Guide, it's the loot book. Mm. There's a lot of really cool stuff in there. But the thing of it is, from from day one, I I was designing magic swords and magic items and stuff for the game, mm. you know, without even start. I mean, even looking at that book. Um, yes. Because I loved them. They were my favorite. They were one of my favorite parts about the game. In fact, the very first dungeon that I ran was the first day I played. Right. And I made that up a whole cloth on the spot. Right. Um, and I didn't even understand rules like hit points or anything like that. What I did is I had more of a, a, a free form, step by step thing where, you know, just like, like almost like uh, uh, the. Um, like the video games where, in like Mist, where you you have to click this to make this happen, right. click that to make this happen. Right. I, I did that. Right. Um, you know, you had to find the dagger in this chest here, yes. and then you had to go put it in this slot here, and then that would unlock mm. this. And, and I did, you know, things that probably indie gamer people would have my head for, like describing a 
dragon that was unrushing at them as soon as this wall fell down and right. they freaked out and they were like a dragon we're only first level and they they you know <laughs> ran away and it's, i'm like it, it's a stuffed dragon <laughs> no wait it's a stuffed dragon stop <laughs> it's stuffed it's not actually moving after, after you know after the first couple of seconds you realize it's not going to eat you. it's, it's just right. a giant stuffed dragon right right and that idea of getting this and going here and getting that and going there um Reminds me a little bit of the first sort of experience I had with role playing. One of them being the the fighting fantasy series, and particularly the City of Thieves, because that was one of the things that you had to do to pick up sort of five things and go around Port Blacksand and, and do all that stuff. But then also those um, the text adventures, like uh, Crystal Caves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, very much like that. And I had played those by that point on like really old, what is now. Uh, really, really old computers. Mm. Like, you know, I had a TI forty, uh, TI four, a TI computer uh, that wasn't the the like little Coco, which was actually quite advanced. This is a TI forty nine A, four K of RAM mm-hmm. with a basic interpreter built in. Yes, sure. Um, so, yeah, and that that was my computer for a little while, mm. and I I uh, was able to play those kind of text based. You know, you, right. It's very dark. You you are likely to be eaten by a group. Right. Yeah, I had an Acorn Electron. I think it was the first computer that we had, and I, I had it specifically because I discovered there was a game called Elite, which was like this space trader game. It was all sort of like white wireframe graphics and so forth, and used to fly uh-huh. around the galaxy, selling and buying stuff and shooting down other ships. And that was the first sort of computer I had. And there was a few um, a few adventure games in that, but not many. So I, I taught myself how to to code basic and i wrote those games for my uh, for myself and my friends to play yeah, yeah that's what i did too yeah. uh, i would get to the end of the 30 of the 4k of ram and say oh well yeah. <laughs> that was fun <laughs> while it lasted as, as far as it gets you yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so you started off with uh, dinosaurs and dragons and the player's handbook and then the kid down the street had a whole bunch of other books and then what did you play next well, um, I played the same thing forever um, until, uh, and, and it could be argued, okay, that I played mostly fantasy freeform in the context of playing D&D for right. most of that time. Right. Because the things like, I did not actually, there was a fellow, a fellow by the name of Gilbert, and my friend um, who came from, he was a Canadian, mm-hmm. actually, it all starts with Canadians. That's uh, right. Actually, like Robin Laws, but um, yes. uh, the... Uh, he came from. Uh, he came to uh, be in our gaming circle, and he was a war gamer, like a serious war gamer. Right. Um, he had played, you know, um, squad leader and all these, uh, you know, Battle of the Bulge, and you know, all these things, all these games with you know that were war games. And he right. was a serious mechanics-driven sort of fella. So he kind of got us all the group of people who were playing back down to the mechanical part of things and right. we started to actually do like using hex maps and all that stuff mm-hmm. um, but before that it was mostly just freeform I mean let's, uh, it was a little bit of dice rolling in between mm-hmm. sure um, and then I played Gamma World right. um, I, I actually play most of the time I was running games um, but I would actually play Gamma World with my friend Bo Berno he was he created a Gamma World game right after the second uh, Mad Max movie came out. Right. And cool. so we we basically played Mad Max in Gamma World. 
Mm, nice. And then uh, um, we played. Uh, then then I started playing running Marvel superheroes, and I don't. I think at a certain point, Marvel superheroes kind of, kind of took over all of our gaming. Right. Until I went to, until I went to school. Until I went to, to UGA. Right. At which point I started up all over again with my UGA group. Hmm. University of Georgia at Athens. Right, right on. And that sort of getting into um, the the time, I suppose, when... Are you thinking more seriously about designing at that point? Well, I mean, I started designing my first game when I was nine. Hmm. Um, using my dad's surplus uh, IBM Selectric uh, typewriter he brought right. home from, right. from work, which he worked for the, uh, for the Army right. uh, as a civilian uh, logistics manager. So he would get... Stuff that had already been marked to be, you know, basically discarded or wasted, mm-hmm. and he would purchase it from the government, bring it home right. uh, for for like a fraction of the total cost. So yes. I had this lovely IBM Selectric typewriter, and I started writing a game where you played an alien who was made of energy, right? And then to start the game, to start your character, you would create your body, right? Uh, so you had to buy, you had points to spend, and you would spend your points. Buying your body, right. and then you'd roll. Then you put your personality into the body that you created, and you play that that character. Right. Um, and then you know everything else was basically D and D. But that little bit of you create your body from scratch was mm. kind of fun. Yeah, yeah and for sure. And the fact that you could back to the matter transmatter you know thing and and say well I don't like this small body or for this mission I want to be a large hulking ogre kind of person right and next mission I want to be small and you know uh, sneaky right or whatever um, plus you, you know you, you can have a sword arm which mm. back then, when I was eight uh, the idea of a sword an arm that's your sword and the sword that's your arm that's that's yeah. awesome yeah yeah yeah, I can imagine that. That and that is a um, is something that I can identify with as well. I think the first time I tried to put games together was I loved Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles character generation um, mm-hmm. scheme, mm-hmm. Um, but but I could, just couldn't get um, I just couldn't get into the what you did with it after that, the resolution, the SDC, and all that type of stuff. Like I couldn't. Uh, so that was so I would create those type of uh, the characters and then muse on how I might go about. Then using that with a system I was happy with, say like uh, um, Middle Earth Rollmaster type or, or something like that. You know that that idea of mixing and matching. You know just to try and get things exactly right. Yeah, you you run smack dab into the palladium uh, um, sheer uh, wildness of it all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that that's what happened. Oh yeah, I love the. Um, I mean, I would read these things. This is where I really started to realize that. You know, gaming is a is a sort of a dual hobby. Dual hobby. There's collecting gaming books and there's yes. playing. Yes. And so, you know, I collected a lot of gaming books over the course of time. And right. I still do. Right. I don't think I'll ever play, but I still got. I I, I have them so that I can read them and soak up information from right. them. Right. So, how many role playing books do you actually have right now? Well, and that's an interesting question because I've gone from being. Uh, a in-the-world book kind of person to a virtual book kind of person. Right. So uh, um, I, the actual physical books that I have are very few. Right. Um, uh, 
I recently went through a period of downsizing and minimizing. So right. I have maybe probably what would be a, a bookshelf, just one shelf of the books, right. uh, physical books. And then right. the rest is all PDF. Right. And I, I don't even know how many countless, you know, I've got, I mean, just every game I buy these days is on PDF. Right. First. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. And how do you feel about PDFs um, from a the standpoint of somebody who has um, did the bulk of your designing? Would you say would be physical media and the problems that that that, that creates or the the advantages that it has? And then the the PDF age that we're in currently, how do those two uh, reconcile for you? Well, it's really funny. It's when I left White Wolf, I went to a company, um, a very a fledgling startup that uh, was in New York and what they they had this really cool idea that they would take this brand new format that Adobe just released mm-hmm. uh, called the pocket the the portable document format right and it, they would create games with that in it and everybody said you're going to lose your shirt it's not going to happen mm. it'll no, no one will ever buy something that you can only get on the computer. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> of course, you know, that startup failed because uh, the funding, i.e. I- dad, yes. dried up. Right, um, right. But uh, in the short period of time there, we were, like, on the bleeding edge of technology, of, like, of thought and mm. heralding what was actually going to happen. Right. Uh, you know, the thing of it is, I, th- I-, I-, I have heard a lot about... Um, my beautiful design, uh, and I'm looking at you, Phil Brucato, uh, and Deliria, does not fit inside a PDF. Okay, right. you know, yes. it's just it's just not going to ever. And I'm like, you know, that's thinking about technology as it exists now, hmm. and you know, because of things like Moore's Law, where you know everything is constantly improving and getting hmm. better and better. Yes. And, if you look at, if you even line up a bunch of uh, iPhones in a row, mm. or if you line up, I mean, you know, you can tell that there's a progression gradually going upward, yes, um, or sometimes steeply going upward, yes, that's making it possible for beautiful things to be displayed, yes, and with great detail. Mm. So the question really becomes, you know, are we designing for? The format we have now, are we designing for the future? I mean, obviously, we're selling for the format we have now. Yes. But it's going to be possible for even, I think, one day, Phil Bucrata to be happy with his PDF of Deliria. Um, even though Deliria is, like, if you look at the book, it is designed, it is a graphic artist's wet dream. Right. I mean, it is just, it's like lavish and completely designed to be, to make this physical and on you as you cross through the, the pages. Yes, yeah, that's and, the thing, yeah. And it's not going to, it does not do that if it's in PDF with the technology we have now. But sure. as time goes on, that will be possible. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing of it is, we can design for, we can design our books for the, the technology we have now. Then when we get better technology, we can re-release the books. Right. Yeah, that, that's true. And I think that, or at least for me, it seems that um, while PDFs uh, for game books, I think, are, are successful, I think that just in the last two or three years, they've become very successful with the advent, or at least the, the availability 
in an affordable uh, form of the the tablet because mm-hmm. it's much easier to sort of like a hold an iPad or a or a Playbook or a or whatever the Android type ones are, are called you know to, to use yes. one of those and hold one of those than it is to have a laptop because a laptop although it is much more portable than a desktop is not quite the same thing as a as a as a tablet and so I think that as tablets become more prevalent I think people see that that's almost you know, like having a book, right? Whereas a laptop is clearly not a book. A, a tablet is like a book. Well, right. And, you know, for, as far as tablets go, um, I started reading ebooks on my uh, iPod Touch. Hmm. Uh, yeah. first, the, first, the first tablet-like device I ever got was an iPod Touch. Right. And um, it was relatively inexpensive. Mm-hmm. It's like an iPhone without a... It's before the iPad came out. It was an iPhone. Before, it was an iPhone without the phone. Right. Yes. Yep. And um, I can read. I read like the entire Song of Ice and Fire series on that. Right. And I mean, it's huge. It's yeah, thousands yeah. of pages. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, yeah. For one, <laughs> like, for one I, of those books, even maybe. Yeah, and I could finish reading a book, and I didn't have to wait to to go and pick up uh, pick up another book. Mm-hmm. I could just. I would hit Amazon. I would hit buy. I would go to the next book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. You know, it's like if that right there is an experience where you know if you've ever had to, if you've ever had the frustration of re- reading any kind of long series, the Wheel of Time series, for mm. example. Yes. Like when I was working in New York City for about eighteen months, I had a commute that took me out of the house for nearly oh eight hours a day. Right. Uh, you know, just the commute part. Yes. So I had to read, and I would. I remember going into like a B. Dalton's bookstore in uh, Times Square or you know Penn Station, mm-hmm. you know, and I would buy one of those Wheel of Time books, and I would read, and then a week later, yeah. <laughs> I would buy another. One. Right. Um, you know, to this day, if you if you quiz me on the backstory of Wheel of Time, I probably don't have very good retention of it. Right, um, but I, <laughs> I did like it at the time. It was good to to, bake, to, uh, uh, to pass the time away. Yes. Ultimately, though, um, like I said, if you get to the end of one book, you can go right to the next one, and that's wonderful. Yes. Uh, so, and people are finding that out as they go. But I, re- I realize that there is, you know, I want to throw a bone to the, um, the to the uh, folks out there, the neo luddites who are against that technology because i yes. want to say you know yes without a doubt there is nothing like reading a book when you read pick up a book and you read it there's a physical sensation there's wonderful you know it's it's immediate you can you know it's it's great yes but um you know i i still for for somebody like me for whom boredom is hell yes uh I uh, I really treasure my e-readers. Mm. Yeah, and along with the move toward there being more PDFs and more of this, more of our designing happening uh, online, there's the the growing, I suppose, support and and use as a as a device in in various different ways of um, Kickstarter and uh, and Indiegogo. But um, the, Kickstarter is not. Uh, it strikes me that there have been. I read a couple of articles on on the internet about people that hadn't received their books um, or received their project um, uh, rewards, I suppose, for for supporting and, and so on and so forth. And my feeling is that that uh, Kickstarter is getting a is getting a little bit of a, a bad rep 
in, in some respects. Have you had, have you noticed that? Well, I think that you know, I do. I hear about these things, and um, I do think this is. I mean, Kickstarter does not present itself as a marketplace, uh, as a as a store, right? Uh, and I think that's one of the problems. A lot of people go to Kickstarter thinking it's a it's a store, and it's not. It, it's more like walking into a town square where there's a bunch of people saying, "Hey, invest in my project." I'll give me money right now, and I promise I'll bring you some neat things later. Mm. Um, and the thing of it is, uh, the caveat mTOR still applies. Yes, uh, you know, it's you have to really. I mean, you have to realize that when you do invest in a project, it's you know, past results are not proof of, of future success. Mm. So you you have to say, okay, if can I part with this money? My, is this ten dollars I'm putting down, or this forty dollars, or this a hundred dollars I'm putting down? Is it something that if I lose that money, I'm not going to have a problem with that? Mm, sure. um, but uh, I mean, there are places for people to go to purchase games that are a, a sure thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I just want to caution people about that. But m- more more than more often than not um the physical aspects of most of the promises that are made are the ones that typically get a fail right that i notice and i think that if everybody was forced to read a book like uh a, like the one that um Monty cook wrote about kick, kicking it um right. uh that uh where you realize that physical even like the act of writing out a card saying thank you Yes. It is such a tremendous, like it does not scale very well, and it's a huge thing to do. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. Back when we first were putting out the very first game, um, the very first uh, Vampire LARP right. uh, called The Masquerade, it was yes. originally re- released because at the time we didn't think that it would fly by itself. Right. So we put, out, we put it out as a box set. Right. And it came with the Book of Nod and the, the rules for the masquerade and a bunch of little tchotchke. Like there was a, a little, you know, steel necklace in there with the symbol for the masquerade. And right. there was a lot of little things, right? Mm. Um, I think it was like a $40 item. Right. Uh, now, that was a great idea. It was just like, okay, cool. But then it came time to actually start sending them to distributors. Right. And guess who had to go and put those together? <laughs> Sam Chuck. What happened? <laughs> well, not just me, but uh, Mark said, okay, well, the stuff for Masquerade is, is, uh, is in the warehouse. And we were like, what do you mean? Like, well, these boxes came in, and that must be it, right? Mm. Now, those are just the boxes. Yeah. Here's the books. Yeah. Here's the little chocolate. Yeah. Here's the, you know. So basically, it was just like... Uh, we had to sit and all of us sit in the hot warehouse and one by one, like it's created an assembly line and we made those boxes happen. Right. But that was a tremendous lesson to me that in the future, I don't want to ever be stuffing boxes for any reason whatsoever. Yeah. And the same, the same thing goes for cards. Yeah. Um, you know, unless I absolutely must, 
Um, but then have friends over and pay them heavily in pizza and beer and maybe even a little money. Mm. Uh, because it's just, I tell you, it's, it's, it's mind-numbing doing yes. that kind of work. Especially when you have all these creative people who yes. you know, they don't they can't they they don't know yet how to turn off their mind and just let their body work. Yes. So you know it's not not very fun for them. No, no, for sure. So what about um, before we came on air, we were talking a little bit about the retailers' um, right. experiences with uh, with Kickstarter and how they relate to it. Right. I've I've started to hear from uh, you know I've started to read on the internet about. Kickstarter real retailers saying to uh, Kickstarter projects, I'm not going to carry. And I mean, this is not just about the pre-order time, the you know the pre-backing uh, time. The uh, this is for the, what they're saying is if a project goes through to completion and is created, mm-hmm. I'm not going to carry that kickstarted project. Right. So that means games. Like Novoterra, Novoterra, I think is what it, how you pronounce it. Right. Uh, the, uh, the the transhuman it's a transhuman fake science fiction game. Yes. Or or even fake core, which is coming out new now in Kickstarter. Right. Uh, you know they're not going to carry that. Right. And, and why is that? Because they feel that it is uh, a competition. Right. Right. That then they don't support their competition. Right. Okay. Yeah. For sure. Um, you know, so what that means is that they're left, I believe that means that they're left selling comics and they're left selling maybe some figures mm. and maybe some very mainstream, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. Right. Um, they're not, they're, the indie publishing community has said, this is our, you know, this is the new golden fleece. This is... You know, this is good, well, how we're going to get our stuff out there because it's successful. Yes. You know, I, how am I going? Am I going to turn down a hundred thousand dollars to get my book out, knowing that that means much more than it means much more than the book? What it means is, uh, Pilgrim Press can hire can can uh, for uh, can hire for a year. Yep. To yep. do to just do whatever. Yes. Yep. For sure. I mean, and they, they did. I mean, yes. what I'm saying is, this is this is the the net effect of like the success of the Hillfolk uh, Kickstarter, right? So, I mean, ultimately, uh, what I think there needs to be there needs to be a little bit of a, a rapprochement or some sort of uh, uh, peacemaking done uh, between the publishers and the retailers, uh, and I think that they could do that if they sat and thought. Well, you know what? Let's do a special offering that will, if this is a kick, we can say in the Kickstarter, if this is funded, retailers, you will get X. Hmm. Um, and only retail. Because that's the thing about retailers is they want something that's just for them. That's, yep. what, distri- that's what distribution gives them. Yes. Uh, so, you know, and they, they, want the right, they want the price to be right, too, because that's the... A margin for them. Yeah, for sure. And one of the other things, I suppose, is that if you've got a game like Fate Core, let's just say, for example, or a system like Fate Core, and you have, I don't know how many backers, let's say 20,000 backers, mm-hmm. um, and then the book goes into the shop, but part of the 
the reward for backing the Kickstarter project is the PDF or the book or whatever it is, then then you don't have, you know, how many people are now going to walk through your door and want to buy Fate Core? Because everybody that wanted it has probably already got it. That's true. I mean, and that is a very strong argument about that. However, like I said, if the publisher created a, a situation where they say, you know, uh, I'm putting out a fake core as a Kickstarter thing, but we also have this rare, this, this book that we're putting out with the money that we got from Kickstarter that is a supplement to fake core that you can only get in yes. physical media form or, or yep. like we're going to delay releasing it as a PDF. And right. we're going to get that and uh, give that to you as a as right. a retail. Right. I mean, what I'm saying is, if they incented, if they worked on peacemaking with the retailer mm-hmm. by saying, you know, hey, I'm throwing you this bone. I'm I'm saying, look, for you guys because you're uh, important. Yes. To do that. And, and also, I I have to say that what that does also from a retailer standpoint, it says just because it says essentially. Um, my group of people who buy stuff at my store are the only people who are going to ever, ever come into my store. Right. And that's wrong. Hmm. You know, that's, that's not – because there are plenty of people out there who are gamers who, you know, they play D&D in high school. They play D&D in college. They have a – then they got a life. Yes. They haven't played D&D again. And they, they heard about D&D 4th edition, but they heard it was like World of Warcraft, and so they're not going to mess with that. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've, had, I've had people tell me this. Yes. And then, so they come back to the gaming store on a, on, you know, they've got their four-year-old in the car sleeping and, uh, you know, with the car idling, their, their wife is in the car. Mm. Hold on a second, honey, let me just walk into this gaming store because I just want to capture some of my youth. Right. Walk into the gaming store. Wow. All there is in here is comic books, which I, you know, comic books are kind of like a hungry meme in and of themselves. They cost a lot of money to even look at a, at one book because yes. once you do, you start buying them. Yes. Um, so there's comic books and there's War, Warhammer figurines or whatever, and mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. I don't have any brand new games to look at. I don't right. have any, you know, how can I do product discovery in mm. this market? Yeah. Um, and, if, and, and if the uh, retailer did fake core day... Mm. And you know, and yes. have a bunch of books out. I mean, do you think that you know? I, I mean, I don't know about you, but if somebody said, "Hey, look, here's the fake core book. If you want to buy it, it's like it's like fifteen dollars." I'm like, I would have, I would purchase that. Yes, yeah. Um, because frankly, just like I said, it's a different story. If you know, you're going to play a lot of fake core. You want the book. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And another thing is that um, another disservice, I suppose that the Kickstarter model does for the bricks and mortar store is that the bricks and mortar store is a nexus in a lot of respects for things. And well, it was, should be. yeah. Yeah. And, and so by stopping people coming in, cause they've already got stuff, you know, that's, you know, that, that plays directly to what you were suggesting in terms of producing a, a, a supplement or a, you know, like a, a bricks and mortar only type product sure. to, to, to get people coming in and sort of talking about it and maybe getting groups together and, and making it a, a place where people might might hang out because you you want people to be buying not just hanging out right right well I mean ideally you know people hanging out um, you want to monetize that too if you can hmm. but I mean you know what I'm saying is ultimately it, it's all about creating a community of people to be in a place at a time right um, 
and it's hard to do that these days. It's really yeah. it is very difficult. And that's why you know Google Plus Hangouts and stuff like that are so valid, so uh, popular. Is right. that you know uh, you can put the baby down uh, for a nap and walk over and do a Google Plus Hangout mm. and still be in the the other room. Yes. Yep. Um, but if you get up and go to the gaming store for four hours, you're yes. gone for four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, however, one might be one might say that it's much more healthy from a psychological lens, mm. <laughs> a psychological aspect, yes. to actually get that kind of time yep. where you're not on call as a parent. That's right. Yeah, I mean that's so, that's a big thing, you know, like getting that uh, getting that not alone time, I suppose, but getting that sure. a different environment and. Uh, yeah, not having a child um, hanging off you. <laughs> Certainly, I've had family counselors tell me that you know that's what you need to recharge your batteries. Yeah. So um, you know, I I, I guess uh, you know you do pre- present a lot of good points, and I can understand why the retailers are upset. And from if I were a retailer, I would be grumpy. But mm. what I would be doing is instead of working against uh, PDFs and working against Kickstarter, mm. I would be trying to co-opt it and do some Aikido bring people in that way right. uh, you know one thing uh, I'd love to know and and I guess we'll have to uh, get a hold of him um, his name is Chris I believe Hammerhan right yep from a uh, gaming store in on the west coast and I think it's in San Francisco yeah, yeah it is he, it's, um, <laughs> oh, it's on the tip of my tongue here um, yeah. end game end game I would I'd love to I'd love to see what that particular person has to say about all this, but um, right. at any rate, so that's, that's say, doable. That is doable. I will, yeah. I will get on that. Yeah. All right. Okay. So what are you playing now? What I'm playing now, I, uh, my most recent game I ran was dungeon world. Right. And I'm, I'm ramping up to play monster hearts. Right. Um, so that, and, and also there is a, a small, but dedicated group of people trying to get me to play, uh, Mage the Ascension um, in uh, what I call threshold format, which is um, the idea behind that is you don't play uh, traditions and conventions. You play individual mages. Right. Um, and there's only like maybe 20 or 30 mages in the entire world. Right. Um, and uh, you take out the aspect of traditions and conventions so that you can focus down on each individual mage being very special and different and important in mm. themselves. Yeah. Uh, you still end up with people who look like an Order of Hermes mage. Right. Or, or whatever. That's okay. But um, that way you don't have to be shackled by any one particular tradition or or by any one particular set of spheres or whatever. And you right. can come up with your own original backstory. Sure. Okay, well, uh, there's an elephant in the room here, Sam, so uh, let's get cracking with some, some White Wolf uh, history type stuff. So when did you right. start off with, um, with uh, White Wolf? I started uh, in 1991 with White Wolf. I, I, was, I responded to an ad on Usenet, which was the Internet news uh, uh, facility back then. Right. Um, pre, pre-web. Yes. Uh, and... Um, I was I've been on the internet since 1986. Right. So uh, you know that was before there was really an internet. It was uh, it was Usenet and it was a lot of uh, collegiate yeah. works. Yeah, yeah. And then 
and after after a while it became the full internet mm-hmm. but, but um I, I responded to an ad. Uh, they were in Stone Mountain. I was in Athens, Georgia, which is about an hour apart. Right. Um, I went to go audition, and uh, I spent a weekend there in in the White Wolf house. We were working out of a suburban house at that right. time. And what did I that did audition see, look like? It was uh, um, here is the text and the uh, art for Blood Bond. Okay. Which was a little mini supplement they were coming out yep. with yep. Uh, to have something for that month, right? Um, and they said, you know, lay it out, right? Okay. <laughs> and by the way, this is an actual product, so we really need it to be good so that we can get it to the printer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I have Blood Bond probably about two feet away from my fingers. I can't quite put my hand on it yet. But but uh, so at that at the point you joined the company, Vampire the Masquerade uh, was already out. Yes, it was. The first right. edition was already out. The right. second printing, the second printing was coming up, and they wanted to have something to give along with the second printing. Right, uh, and that was Blood Bond. Right. Okay. So when you so you had to you had to run it for somebody, or you had to you had to give your take on what it would look like when it went to the shop, or were you like a designer? Oh, oh no, no, no. The audition was a layout position. Oh, right, so, right. Okay. Yeah. They, the whole idea really is that, um, you know, from a small business standpoint, you can't afford a lot of thinkers mm. uh, at that stage, uh, writers, thinkers, designers. You can afford one, um, and you can afford an editor, and yes. you can afford a layout person. Right. And so that was me. I had been doing layout, um, as luck would have it, already. I, I was working on pre uh, desktop publishing uh, environments right. uh, with with uh, stuff that you can't even get today. Yes. But then I started working as a desktop publisher person for like I worked. I did a stint for a local printer for a while, and I did a stint for um, uh, for uh, the Kinko's copying people. Right. And so I I knew the technology that they used to make the books. Right. And um, so I could do, you know, basic meatball layout. I'm not going to call myself a layout artist mm-hmm. because uh, you look at Daniel Solis for any amount of time and you say, you say, well, okay, yeah, I'm not, I'm not an artist. No. I'm just a, I'm a hack. <laughs> yeah, I can put yes. the I can put the words in order, and I can make sure that they look okay. Yes, that's what, they, and that's really what they needed. They did not need an artist at that point in time. Mm. They needed somebody who can get the books done. Right, right, um, and that's what I was. Right, and so after that weekend, you went home crossing your fingers, or you went sort of, you know, if they oh, call no, me, no. that'd be great. But if they don't no. call me, that might also be cool. They, they took a look at the finished work, and they said, "You're hired." We need you. Can you right. get started now? Wow. Cool. So it was suddenly, uh, let's move me and my then pregnant, now ex-wife, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to Atlanta uh, yes. in a very short order and get, get, and get started with the company. Right. And you, uh, so that was 1991. And so was White Wolf oh. blowing up at that point or was it still sort of simmering? Well, you know, I, I was a Lion Rampant fan before I was a White Wolf fan, so right. I had kind of followed their arc. Right. And um, at that point in time, Vampire was was taking off, but um, it was still sort of in question. We were still doing books like for Ars Magica. Right. Um, the thing, the, the thing that really told um, Stuart and Steve and uh, Mark 
that they had something was when Vampire Player's Guide came out. Right. It blew sales figures out of the water. Right. And I remember, and, and actually Vampire's Player, Vampire Player's Guide is also one of the very first times that I got to actually put words in a, in a White Wolf book. Right. Because they uh, had a essay section. Right. And they couldn't find enough writers to write essays. And I just said, oh, you know, I could do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How about I have a turn? <laughs> yeah. They're like, you kid. All right. Fine. So were they quite a lot older than you, or is that just for the, for the purposes of the... Of the, no, the I, I was just like, as a, as a film noir kind of movie, you know, like, yes. all right, kid, give yes. me your best shot. Yeah, I was, I was curious to know, like, how, uh, what age um, the, the Wicks Actually, and uh, Mark Reinhagen were. I don't know what their ages were, but I, I can say that they were a slight. I think they were slightly younger than I was. I was the old man because I had I had been. I mean, if nothing else, I was the old man because I I had had a baby son by that point. Right. You know? Sure. Yep. I had had years of responsibility working for a family um, mm-hmm. on my belt, and so I was a completely different animal than these guys. These guys right. would come into work at you know eleven a.m. with sort of. Uh, hangover look on them and mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Yes. And I was there, you know, in the morning and ready to go and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just yes. completely different kind of guy. Right, right. Because uh, I had a family and you know, I I was uh, a, I was a dad. Right. Um, and I was working, you know, and my my daughter uh, Genevieve was going to be born December fifteenth of that year. So, right. Uh, so ultimately. Um, you know, I had a lot on my mind at that point in time, but I did. Uh, but I did enjoy doing some uh, editing and some. I mean, doing some minor editing uh, in the in the uh, layout. When you're doing layout, you can you have a chance to catch the very last bits right. of any kind of hominid spelling errors or anything like yep. that. Yeah, yeah, sure. You're really familiar with all the text, so. Mm. You know, and then, and at one point, they said, "You know, we need somebody to write Pax Day. Nobody wants to write about God." Hmm. And, and I'm like, I'll do it. Yeah. And uh, that was my first book contract, was Pax Day. Right. And so, what um, did a book contract look like back then? Was it a matter of you know we're going to just kind of keep paying you your your regular salary, and you we need to have it by this amount of time, or was there actually a, a separate component then? You know, you said, well, you're not going to do it on on company time, or we're going to cut your hours in half, but we're going to pay you this much when the project is done, or. No, no. Uh, they still wanted me to continue to do layout work full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, they basically offered a freelance contract right. uh, to do the, to do the work, and it was a work for hire freelance contract. Mm-hmm. Now that that phrase basically means that you do the work, you get paid, that's it. See you later. Right. Um, you don't get any rights to put republishing. You don't get any royalties. You don't get anything. Right. Um, so, and that's their standard contract. That, that was their standard contract for the longest time. I believe that's probably still their standard contract. Right. Uh, uh, you know, you work for them, you give them your ideas, they pay you whatever amount that that is you agreed to, and then you walk away, and that's all you get. Right. So, so that was, uh, so that takes you through the end of 1991-ish, right? Yeah. Right. Um, and then... The werewolf, the uh, so so the player's guide came out and it blew up huge and it sold it lots, yeah, yeah, and it sold lots and lots of uh, of, of books. And was the staff still very small at that point? It was. Uh, Andrew Greenberg lived in the basement of the house, um, right. and you know, sort of like the 
he, he was great because he would come upstairs and look all, you know, ah, he has all this hair, so mm. like you know, a huge mane of hair, so he's like a little ogre coming into the into the area. He was a great guy. Sure. Um, I, uh, but yeah, he was our editor and developer. Uh, then they hired Ken Cliff from Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, he was the guy who really kind of he, he he's the one who really started to put production in and and make there be hard and fast deadlines. Um, before the uh, things were kind of a little, you know, a little loosey goosey. Um, right. You know, whenever you trans- transition from a entrepreneurial status to a going concern, like yes. you, you do have to make these kind of tightening ups and these tr- transformations. Mm. Um, so what happened was because of the base of the money that was coming in from books like Vampire Player's Guide. And the fact that the company was actually able for a short time, for like the first time in its life, come out with a book every month. And that was one of the things the distributors really wanted. They yes. wanted something every month, just like comics, but that's what they understood. Right. We understand that a comic comes out every month and a game should come out every month. Right. Um, there's been a lot of talk uh, in, on design forums about the, the thing that that does to game design. Right. Uh, but you know, and, and it is true; it's poisonous uh, to right. a certain extent right. uh, to game design. But uh, it is relentless. You have to have a book every month in right. that time period. So we did because we did. We had money. Yes. And because we had money, we went and signed a contract on a actual place of work. And, right. You know, a, a office warehouse combination. The office right. in the front, the warehouse in the back. Right. And that was where we had our first Foursquare uh, tournament. Uh, court right <laughs> and will you pack those boxes yeah that's where we packed the boxes that's where we did our uh, uh pagan ritual for uh, the beginning of may uh, mage the ascension right. yes uh, all of that now i, I know <laughs> you've listened to um uh, a few of the episodes and and i'm pretty sure you've listened to episode five with was chris with chris bailey so you'll, you'll know that sort of our game was um was mage the the ascension but prior to that there was there was werewolf the apocalypse was the majority of that written when you uh came uh on to um came on site for white wolf or was that something that was you were there for the development of also well um the Mark Reinhagen patented creative destruction uh, design process goes like this. Uh, you take, uh, you have a vague general idea of what you're going to do. You do what we call now playstorming, right. uh, which, uh, you know, where you just get a bunch of people together and you have a framework and you just kind of playstorm a bit. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and you write a first draft. Right. And then, or like, you know, it's a very sketchy first draft. It's like a, it's almost like a, um, you know, more of a, a treatment and then you do a little bit more playstorming and play testing you know you really can't call it play testing if you don't have a game system right um, you have a basic mechanic uh all the storyteller games at that time have the same basic mechanic yep. but yep. you know when we first got the first playstorming edition of werewolf it was uh vampires with fur uh, you know they had they had disciplines uh, for powers, right? Uh, and you know, if design had proceeded along those lines, then people who wanted to you know make World of Darkness into a GURPS-like kind of game, right, would have been happy. Yes. I think they would have been very happy to have all the all the powers be associated with some sort of you know talent-like disciplines. But yes. unfortunately, that's not what happened. 
Um, what happened is we they went over instead to the model of every game is its own perspective, right. and you play you don't play the world of darkness as a whole. You play a werewolf as a game right. um, with vampires in it, right. or you know you play a mage as a game with werewolves and vampires in it, mm-hmm. or whatever. Yes. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very interesting. Um, it was a very cool first werewolf game, um, but the the real value of the game came in when people who had some mythic uh, training in the Native American ways and who had some um, more spiritual side of the spiritual side of things uh, got involved. Right, and that's because Mark uh, is a preacher's kid. Right, what you think of, and he's he's also he's a very rational person. So spiritual stuff, I mean, he understands that spiritual stuff works, right? And he has respect for it, right? But it's not him. So sure. bringing that spiritual aspect into it is what I feel made werewolf what it is. Right. Um, you said um, you said unfortunately when uh, you said that the, the, the it didn't go sort of the GURPS uh, route that every game became its own. Um, its own thing. Is that from a standpoint of uh, how you would prefer to see the um, the games go, or is that more from a standpoint of somebody who's going to go ahead and write some of the later ones, you know, uh, what difficulties that created? Well, no, it's more from, it's, it was actually a little bit of sarcasm. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Was, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, the thing of it is, I mean, I personally believe that every, that people should play you know the, the way that they originally were created, games were played, were, were made so that you have a perspective. Yes. Um, in fact, that's why there's so much flavor text. That's why there's so much fiction. That's mm-hmm. why there's so there was so much attention paid to the way the book looks and and the way the art feels and you know because it's creating a perspective that you play from. Right. Uh, now. Is this covered by system? No, uh, you know, and um, that's what pissed off a lot of indie gamers. I mean, you know, people, people like Vincent Baker, who said, you know, you call this a storyteller game. There is no mechanics for doing these things. Why right. is this a storytelling game? It's right. not. It's just a. It's a. It's a lie. Um, <laughs> you know, and I got that. I, I understand that, but. One of the things that I, you know, in our defense back then, we had no way to, at that point in time, we had no way to sort of talk about the language of gaming to, to, to know what we were trying to go for. Right. I knew it because I felt it. I played it myself. I, I That's how I ran games. Right. Um, you know, by encouraging individual uh, character agency, by saying, what are you going to do, and, and, and following up with... Supporting them instead of working mm. against them, yep. um, you know those kind of things, those kind of ideas. Which you, re- if you read all those essays and stuff and all the books, you'll see that we're st- we're still trying to lead people in that direction without pro- providing any kind of system mm. to do so. One of the things that I that I, when I sort of fell back in love with with the hobby was. Um, was the storyteller system. Now, some people said, you know, like the system doesn't um, support the goals of the book and, and so forth. And I haven't really chimed in on one side uh, or the other because for me, um, and this goes back to a little bit to what we were talking about before, is that 
the, what you're unless you're a war gamer or a board gamer or something like that, where there is a really strict box that the play takes place in, then I feel that it's part of the it's never, probably never written, but it's part of the hobby to take a look at all this material that you've got and then to use that as the basis for the game that you're going to play. So I don't really feel that some of that stuff needed to be needed to be explicit. I felt that the flavor text and the whole uh, direction of the books was really refreshing the the um, the emphasis placed on you know the backstory for your characters and then weaving that into the into the um, into the narrative that, that that would follow for me that was um, you know that was that was the big revelation I suppose that mm. you know that all of the decisions that you make during the creation process will then inform the game later on so in that way I felt that you know the storyteller system was was perfectly, you know, was was aptly named, but the the system um, helped to tell the story. But the storyteller part of it emphasised, at least for me, emphasised the fact that you're really trying to create a story rather than say in Dungeons and Dragons or at least some games of Dungeons and Dragons where it's more about more about solving the problem, right? Right. Killing right. the guy and getting the loot, right? Right. Right. Exactly. Um, although, believe me. I have seen, I've uh, heard a lot of, um, you know, I was the internet representative for Wildwolf, right. the very first one. Right. Uh, because uh, before there was a any kind of worldwide web forums or podcasts or anything like that, there was uh, Usenet, yes. uh, Usenet groups for Wildwolf. Mm-hmm. And there was also, um, there was also MUDs and Mushes, which mm. were like shared spaces. There were... You know, places where you could get connected and you could chat, you could play, you could role play to a certain extent from a text standpoint. Right. Um, everything was described in text. Uh, there was no graphics in these. These were all like just text based. And I connected with the gaming community that way as well. Right. Um, but I had uh, a lot of email from people saying, let me tell you about my game. Right. Because that's what people want to do. They, yes. they have a, they go in, they have a wonderful experience, they want to share it with other people, and they really want to share it with the people who made the game because yeah. they feel gratitude. And, yes, sure. Uh, so, and when I would go to conventions, that would be what I'd hear. And right. a large portion of those stories seem to be, from my perspective, based on just the, what they said to me, that, you know, we were playing D&D with vampires. Right. And, you know, because we were... We were doing this. We were getting loot. We were killing things. We were going back to town. We were, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, and, and to a certain extent, there are products that White Wolf came out with, like the Diablery books, yes, where they were trying to you know tap into that. Like mm-hmm. you're playing D and D with vampires. You're going into a dungeon. You're killing things. You're mm-hmm. getting the treasure at the end, which is the uh, the the attempt to uh, Diablerize a Methuselah. Right. Yeah. For sure. I used vampire and uh, and werewolf as flavor for the the mage mage games that i ran and also it was, was the, the chris ran um because you know all that really super rich backstory sort of informed so many so many things so so whereas i found werewolf and mage uh, sorry werewolf and vampire were very similar games um obviously the the mythos for both of the games and the spiritual nature of the um 
of uh, werewolf and sort of tapping into that uh, Native American folklore and, and folklore from from all across you know all across the world. You know that was nicely juxtaposed with the very humanocentric um, world of the of the well, vampirocentric, I suppose, world of the of the vampires and those two those two clashing. But then uh, Mage came out, and did, did Mage take a long time to produce because it's so different, it seems to me, than the other two games. Yeah, we got a first draft of Mage, and what happened was we did this ritual on February second uh, of that year, and we this is nineteen ninety two. Oh gosh, it's no, this would be like after Werewolf came out, right? So oh, must ninety three then. Is it? Yeah. So we did we did this ritual. We and we sent the um, you know they had already done a, a small treatment of Mage at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stuart, who was a um, Philosopher, he he's a you know a student of philosophy, and he is really deeply into a lot of different philosophic uh, concepts. And he had um, uh, some people who were really metaphysical folks, and they deeply went into um, trying to break free of paradigm mm. of anything else that had ever been done, uh, and and really create a metaphysic to try and explain the universe um, from a meta perspective. Right. And so when they did that, um, first of all, they created a, rough, a first draft, they handed it in to us. It was unreadable and unplayable. Right. Because it was about, it was like on a college level. Right. It was on a graduate level. Yes. Um, yeah, sure. It was, it was huge. I mean, uh, I read it. I kind of got what was going on. Did I, did any stories at all come to me? No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? um, so we rewrote it in, mm-hmm. you know, two weeks at, with, with fuel with coffee and pizza. And I mean, when I say we, I mean, everybody was on staff, staff at that time. It's like all hands on deck. Right. Let's turn out. Let's make this happen. Yes. Um, and so that's why Maid's first edition has some interesting quantities to it. There's some things in there that are not fully defined or whatever. And mm-hmm. that's why when people say, well, what is, what is the edition of Maid you play? I'd say it's Maid's second edition, the one that Phil, you know, the Phil it was on board for, and he could tie it all together. He saw right. the big picture. Right. You know, he was able to get it all working. Mm-hmm. But um, ultimately, uh, you know, Mage basically pulled back the camera to the whole universe and suddenly showed you that werewolves and vampires are just like these guys hanging out. You know, mm, they're, mm. they're not that important, ultimately. They, yes. you know, va- vampire is a small, minor entropy effect. You know, yes. a werewolf yep. is, uh, a werewolf is a, 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 per- a person with a, a spirit uh, attached to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... Yeah, the, that, the size, the, the, the scale of the, the world of darkness... Um, it changed entirely when when Mage came out, and mm-hmm. I the I, I think well, and, and see, I wanted to I wanted to say something about what you just said. Hmm. People who are playing Mage understood the world of darkness differently from that perspective. Right. But see, the problem is that that's what caused this schism, if you will, of people getting upset. I mean, that's to a certain extent that's what caused people getting upset when they realized that because mage came out and was this huge universal, universal approach, they couldn't go back to being vampires, believing that the vampires were the rulers of the world. Right. Um, because they, they, they knew that mage existed, but if they could, I mean, but 
But really, what we what we wanted for them to do is if they wanted to play vampire, go ahead and play vampire. Mm-hmm. Because there's no reason why you have to add mages to the story. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or even if you did, the paradox itself requires mages to be very subtle. Yes. Yep. And so why why couldn't you do it that way? But you know, there was always these arguments of like, okay, well great, I've got this, you know, uh, very powerful sixth generation vampire who, you know, is a Tremere lord and he's, you know, extremely powerful and then this be- beginning mage with life floor can go in and rip me apart. Yes. Well, this is not about lets you and him fight. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he's you the know? toughest character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is more about what game are we playing to start out with? And if yes. you're playing, yes, if you're playing mage and you have vampires in the game, vampires are, you know, the, the benefit of vampires is that they don't have to worry about paradox. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that well, you, I used, as I say, I used vampires on the on the side, but in our mage uh, campaign, there was a vampire. There was a vampire character. It was a, a, a chap who was transiently involved because he didn't live in the city, but he was a friend of, of Chris's. And so this this character by the name of Jeff Whiting uh, came in and out of the of the story, and and he slotted in um, seamlessly. I mean, obviously the the bigger picture was was based on you know the machinations of um, a group of syndicate mages um, and so that was sort of the the hub of the of the story rather than it being uh, a, a conflict between different vampires but um, but yeah I mean he sl- slotted in seamlessly there was no reason why you couldn't you couldn't have the two, but but like you say, you know that's the the, the thing. You know, w- when you talk about these experiences you had at conventions where people are saying, you know, I was basically playing. Well, your interpretation was that they were playing a Dungeons and Dragons game um, as as vampires. You know, that's a that's a different sort of experience that's being uh, evoked rather than, uh, or sorry, in comparison to what what you get into with with Mage. Because I liked Mage first edition. I liked how. Um, I liked how sort of it, there weren't strict delineations on the way that things worked, and it really it really lent itself to storytelling because you had to figure out a way to make this stuff work. What stuff you were going to use, you know, to the letter. What stuff you were going to sort of gloss over a little bit. What bits you felt, you know, made the story better. And, and so, in that respect, some of the failings, I suppose, in a mechanical sense of the first edition, were for me. A real boon in terms of mm-hmm. what, how it it caused me to evolve my uh, my role playing or, or storytelling, if you like. Okay, and and that's good. Um, ultimately, though, you know, everybody who didn't get to play with Daniel back then, <laughs> sure, were out of luck. And so, sure. No, 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 no. I, I just, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, I'm not putting my hand up and saying, "Look how awesome I am." I'm just saying for no, me. No, that, no. I'm just saying. I'm just saying the. Look at it from a more of a universal perspective. Yes, in the sense that you did that and you were good and you 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 kicked butt and took names. The thing of it is, and I'm sure there were a lot of other people who did that and and were good and they could kick butt and took names. But a game company survives on a number of players yes. playing. Of course, of course. And uh, we couldn't make that happen. No, no. Mage first edition. I mean, it's just. Sure. No, I mean, I, I love Mage Second Edition as well, and, and I play Mage Second Edition. But what I was really saying is, and I, I'm not going to take all the credit for this because primarily Chris yeah. Bailey, who's very metaphysical himself, was yeah. sort of the, the driving force behind it. I'm, I'm a little bit more um, uh, 
analytical perhaps than than Chris is Chris like oh that'll be okay we'll do this and then we'll do this and and he made he made it work I, I the mage edition I play a second edition as well but um, I guess the um, the 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 point. That, that you're making, and I agree, is that if you want people to play, you know, it has to be a game that they can play without it being too um, requiring too much work to even you know roll the dice the first time. Like, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? Right? Yes, exactly. And the, the, you see the problem inherent in casting spells. Is, uh, I mean, when you cast a spell in Mage, when you do a spell of any kind, an effect of any kind, you're basically having a mini game design moment. Mm. Okay. Every time you do that. Because what you're doing is you're negotiating with the storyteller about what you want to have happen, and he's negotiating with you about what the cost is going to be. Right. And it's between you that that makes up, you know, that's what it is. Um, and then there's the element of fortune with the, with the storyteller dice that tells you how well you do. Right. But um, ultimately, uh, you know, when you do this, when you are designing this this bit of essentially game design that's doing this bit of on the fly it's so open-ended right that um and it isn't it is not being supported very much by system like there's no there's no system underpinnings so you have to be brilliant every time you do it or if you're not so brilliant you don't do so well right um as as a player your your mage may, may be incredibly brilliant mm. but your the player may not be on that night and so right. You know, that's what that's why I think the system matters. People have a point. Yes. In, in that, you know, in a system matters game, it doesn't matter whether I'm feeling brilliant tonight. Yes. I can still do what I need to get done. Yes. Um, now, I, I appreciate. I mean, st- when from a storytelling standpoint, of we take the game out of storytelling, and you talk about it as two storytellers sitting across the bar at a pub, mm. then then we're talking about. That's that's your brilliance there. That you know, you bring your talent to the table right. uh, at that point, and you are storytelling without right. any game involved. Yes. But when you put the game in there. You have to have system. I mean, I, I'm, I've come to believe over the course of my studies that you have to have system to, to hold it up. Yes, um, that's why when I play storyteller now, uh, I tend to say to people, "Look, I'm going to be freeforming this for the most part." Let's let's just all agree that we're going to be freeforming. I'm going to give you offers in the narrative. You're yes. going to accept or take them. Yes. Uh, we'll move forward. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Not a lot of dice rolling because, no. frankly, you know, I, I I can't I can't buy into that anymore. It's like once you see the man behind the curtain, yes. <laughs> yeah, you can't believe in the Wizard of Oz anymore. Right, right, absolutely. That's what I found um, at sort of from that point is that the that the number of times that dice would actually come out and get rolled became fewer and fewer because the 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 narrative will sort of pick up pick up pace and people buying in and the, the story is being told and like you say you know pulling out the dice sort of in some respects you know breaks that um, breaks the spell that's sort of been cast right well i mean it works really well for situations where we cannot agree you know daniel wants to turn the vampire into living ice and i don't think that's very good for the story so mm. you know you and i don't agree too well about this particular way of things going and so now it's time to bring the dice out and we can make that and that way it's not either one of us in our way the dice yes. is there yeah yeah and that's fine i'm really not very good when it comes to remembering rules which is perhaps why i have um so few rules um, in, in the game that I wrote. I find it mm-hmm. difficult to know what rules 
it is that, uh, remember the exact rule for the situation, but also I'm particularly poor at figuring out whatever it is that I need to roll, and so I invariably find myself sitting, if I'm a player, sitting in a situation where I say, okay, tell me what I need to roll and tell me what I need to see. So that part of it I always found helped me to stay you know, to stay immersed in the story because I didn't have to do this mathematics on the fly, and that's sort of why that's mm-hmm. why I wrote the the like wrote the rules that I wrote, where you know you always roll the same dice and you're always doing exactly the same thing. So it's so it's easy to, for even a, a dummy like me to to remember what's what's going on. But that that was almost a little bit of magic too. You know, that little storytelling moment that okay, so you're using this with a with a focus, and you're doing this, and you're doing that, and you know that whole sort of putting it together was. At least the, the narrative that was going on in my head at the time was, you know, I'm, I'm actually sort of thinking this out as a, um, as, as a mage, and that's a situation where I'm concerning myself with, with paradox. Now, I know that's a mechanical thing banging up against a storyteller thing, but if the, the game demanded that I do something, I just said, look, I do this. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I don't, I'm not going to try and. Um, I'm not going to try and do it. Like I grab out my feather because I was a dream speaker. I grab out my feather and I throw it up in the air and, and then this is what I want to happen. And then I don't concern myself with my target numbers and I don't concern myself with how much paradox I'm going to get. I just be a, a, a creature of passion at that point and then I do the thing. And so for me, for me that, really, uh, that, really, that really worked. So. Yeah, and I, I think that there's a certain value to that because, I mean, ultimately you don't want to be I mean, if you are not that kind of, if you are an ecstatic player, an ecstatic character, um, mm. uh, like a shaman, mm. where shaman, I mean, because, you know, from a real world occult standpoint, mm-hmm. um, the Order of Hermes kind of mage would spend years preparing for a ritual mm. and write down every aspect of it and, and create things just for that ritual and that sort of thing. And be, and that, that mage would be very considerable, considering about how much power it's going to require, how much paradox am I going to get, and that sort of thing. That's from a rational standpoint. But right. from an ecstatic standpoint, when you're a shaman, you are going to fight the death bear. Yes. Yeah, you, yeah. You're not, you don't care about, like, you don't, you don't care about what kind of paradox you're going to get. You're going to summon, you're going to, you're going to ask the, the, you're going to ask horse to create you in, in you power and strength. Uh, and if it's more than the world can handle, whatever, you'll accept that. Right. Right. Um, so, I mean, and to a certain extent, pa- uh, paradox is, a very powerful uh, stick. Mm. You know, it, it can be a very good thing for a storyteller to have. I mean, the thing, the thing is, a lot of players think of it as a bad thing, and to a certain extent, it is. But you know, I have had some really interesting stories come up out of a paradox backlash. Like yes. so, suddenly, this mage showing up, uh, a virtual adept mage had a paradox backlash, and. Uh, his soul was transmitted to a gambling machine in Las Vegas. Right. And he stuck in this gambling machine until somebody hit the jackpot. Oh, is that right? Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd go back to him every so often and I'd say, okay, so Granny comes up and she puts another yeah, yeah. dollar in. She's right. pulling cool. the hammer. And, and, and I'm like, and, and, you know, meanwhile, all this other stuff is going on. The player knows what's all going on. And so it right. becomes this valuable situation right cool all righty well that's lots of uh of storyteller chat we've sort of got to the end of uh well not the end but certainly we've fleshed a lot of the ideas behind um mage the ascension and uh i'd like to be able to do the wraith 
uh, part of it justice there. So um, if you'd be happy to talk again, Sam, then we'll sure. we'll get into the to the wraith and the my my idea about you know like a wraith was a game ahead of its time, and then you can rebut or uh, or yeah, refute yeah, okay. or <laughs> another time. But let's do some of the uh, let's do some of the questions. So let's go with for the most juicy one first, which is if you could role play with four people, living or dead, who would that be? And I understand these are people I, I, I don't game with now, uh, and I can't I can't say uh, bring people back to life uh, in my family. Right. Yes. Yeah. For sure. All right. Well, um, you know the uh, I'm going to have to choose a table of women because I do I really enjoy gaming with women. Yes. Um, and since it's, it's people that I'm not already affiliated with. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, I do know Bliss Morgan. Bliss is on Google Plus. She's an author. She she writes a, a great deal of wonderful books. Right. Uh, Nayla Hopkinson. She wrote uh, Brown Girl in the Ring, and she's a, a Lucas Award winning uh, uh, author. Right. Um, Diane Duane, who wrote just about you know every really good Star Trek episode, and who also wrote um, so the So You Want to Be a Wizard series. I'd love to, to have right. her there. Right. And Shanna Germain, who right now is editing the Numenaria uh, book for um, the Cook. I actually asked her on Twitter, you know, are you a game designer yet? Right. Because I wanted yeah. to know. And I think she would be an awesome uh, addition to the table. Right. But, uh, and t- we'd probably play uh, what I'm coming up, what I'm sort of in a playstorming stage with, uh, uh, Silken. Right. Okay, is, tell us uh, about that, too. It's a fantasy, uh, a romantic, mysterious fantasy role-playing game set in a uh, fantasy version of Paris plus Venice. I mean, there's a, you know, it's kind of, I can play fast and loose with those kind of cultural reference because mm-hmm. it's fantasy. Of course. So, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the concept in a nutshell. If you think of a, a fantasy, ver- add fantasy to dangerous liaisons and you've got, a, you've got the game. All right, cool. Um, and so, uh, will you be running that game, or would you like one oh, of those yes, ladies? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, we'll be running that game. And and why in particular um, those those four people? Like, what um, what sort of story do you think you'd end up uh, telling? Well, um, I know that I would get depths of character from them right. that I really, really resonate with. Mm-hmm. Um, these char- their characters would probably be. Uh, entertaining, funny, uh, insightful, conflicted, uh, and extremely—you um, know—they, they, I'm hoping that they would respond to the setting uh, really, really well. Like you know, because of course. Uh, because it is it is a setting um, with sort of a very um, bohemian kind of setting. Right. Uh, lots of. Uh, um, there's some swashbuckling that goes on. There's some romance. There's uh, there's intrigue, um, you know, and I would love the, to see what they they do with all that. Right. Cool. Um, and, you know, they, they would create plots and and uh, ha- use their influence maybe to right wrongs or to uh, create you know for themselves new. Uh, Storylines and that sort of thing. So, right. Okay. Well, that's your idea of role playing uh, heaven. So, what would be your idea of role playing hell? Now, this doesn't mean like uh, that you need to have a go at a particular game, but like a style of game, like something that would happen in a game, or something that happens in a game that that drives you crazy and you're forced to do it for uh, for all eternity. Well, I, and and really, that's just it. Daniel. It, it can be. I have discovered that over time, no matter how good any game can be, um, any one game is. Uh, 
it, it's like those. Uh, it's like that sketch on Saturday Night Live, the "All You Can Eat." Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. This is not all you can. Yeah. Um, if you if you are forced to play any game, yes, uh, on a regular basis, on, on like an, an hourly basis, right. Uh, for, for days and days and days, where you are on, especially if you're the game master, you're on the spot. You have to create the storyline. You have to beat all the NPCs. You know, you have to bring your best every single hour of every single day. Mm-hmm. That, that in and of itself is, is a form of hell. Sure. Um, it, it sounds like at first it would be wonderful, and then, and at first it is wonderful. But when you get to the end of your current like juice as mm. a creative person, yes, then. You are making things happen that are not good. You know they're not good. You you, but you have to keep going. That's right. Yes, you have to have things. And 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 you. So you're just grasping at straws. You might as well start at the top of the list in TVTropes.com and and look at all the tropes and just just bring them all in because you can't. And one thing is, it, it you can stare at the. Uh, the S. John, S. John Ross's uh, list of all the the gaming plots that exist every day, and sort of try and come up with something new. But it, it's it gets to a point where you want to do something different. Yeah, that so was that, that's the hell. Yeah, that, we, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you on that, and that was one of the things that Chris uh, Bailey, episode five, uh, taught me is that when he felt he'd got to the end of that juice, instead of like eking it out, he'd just say, "And that's where we're going to finish." Right, because you're just like you know what I've got nothing left, yes. and that and that might be you know like an hour before we ordinarily finished or whatever. But just leaving it at a at a sweet spot is something that I that I still do today. Like I'm aware that that people make time for it, and so I'm not going to run half an hour worth of game. But if I get to the point where I feel like yes. you know like I've got I've got nothing left, then it's it, you know you're here for a good time, not a long time, right? Like it's not about spending six hours because you said you'd spend six hours. It's about having a good uh, gaming experience. So going along with that question. <clears throat> And going along with having no no juice left and and, and so forth, when uh, White Wolf was uh, was sort of on fire, um, and you know there was people were buying books left right and center. You had this punishing, but I, I suppose financially rewarding, and also in terms of, of fans sort of rewarding sequence of, of releases. Um, you must have been doing conventions as well, and was there any kind of a, a rock star element that you found to it? Oh yeah. I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, um, there were. Some, I mean, the best of those were uh, was when I got to go to University College Cork in Ireland, right. and I, I, I was. I had to bring a suit because I had to meet the Lord Mayor of Cork wow. and his lady wife. And, oh wow! Uh, I, you know, he had he came out with a cloak and this massive. Chained uh, with the symbol of the city of Cork on it, and right. he, you know, it's what it is that you do. And I had to explain, you know, the wow. gaming and storytelling, and wow. kind of give it. That would be the that would be the pitch. I'm going to stop you right there, Sam, because I want to yeah. hear I want to hear that pitch <laughs> <laughs> to the Lord Mayor of Cork. <laughs> so oh, what did wow. you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, basically, just I, I talked about story. I focused more on storytelling and right. You know, as a in a grand tradition of storytelling, and I'm, I'm really you know, part of this is I'm coming to learn from great storytellers here. Uh, you know, I. I suck up when I have to. And sure. <laughs> so right, right, right. But um, uh, that was wonderful. That was rock star. I Everywhere I went, there was somebody who, like, I, I would show up at a location and somebody would either press a food or a drink in my hand. Wow. Um, 
And uh, so I spent a large portion of that trip in the pub. I never got to, I mean, you know, Barney Castle was right down the road. I could right. have gone there if I wanted. Right. But I'm like, no, you just take me wherever you want to go, like where you right. like to go, because right. I'm more interested in the people. Right, yeah, that that must have been that must have been something. So okay, but the, the flip side of that, I guess, is um, are there any um, experiences at cons that you're like, well, that was the worst experience. I don't mean like somebody was getting ready to to, to bloody your nose for you, but just like you yeah. know, some, some you know, like you get people you know, like uh, I've I've seen it at conventions. I've never experienced it my, myself, but. Um, uh, and why would I? But uh, the but people sort of standing about two feet away with this this look in their eyes, like just like I can't believe that person is standing right there, and I'm you know I'm standing within within two feet of them, like that. Uh, do you have any interesting tales to tell along those lines? Well, um, it's true that you know there's a certain amount of sort of hero worship that goes on, um, but you know ultimately. And, and really one of the reasons why I did go to so many cons for White Wolf is because a lot of the guys there just don't want to do that. Right. Um, they don't want to hear the, let me tell you about my, my character story. Right, right. Um, and, they, and they know that on their face it's going to show that they yes. just aren't interested. Right. So, but for me, for me, I mean, I've never forgotten what it's like to just be a regular gamer. Sure. And so I tend to listen a little bit. I mean, if I'm really tired and exhausted and someone's still pressing themselves on that, that's a different story. But sure. I'll listen to their character stories because, mm-hmm. frankly, um, you know, it's kind of owed. I feel it's kind of owed mm. uh, to the to to the gaming public. Like, yes. it's not it's not that we are the gods and they are the supplicants. It's they are our customers and they're the people who pay yes. my salary. So, yes. So I'm going to treat, treat them as as well as I can. Yes. Um, so uh, ultimately, you know, yeah, there were a lot of and the, and the thing of it is, I did. Have some gaming, some some games that I ran at a convention where you, you set up with like five people, you get four hours, you can you run a game, right? And you know I've had situations like that where I wanted to be anywhere but there, right? Like that game, that gaming table was for whatever reason just not working, and the best thing that could have happened is for somebody to come out of the blue and say, you know, you. You don't seem to be in the mood to game. Why don't you go have fun somewhere else? Yes, uh, but I couldn't do that as a no. as a representative I, of the company. I couldn't just do that. Right. So I would do what my best to try and work them in, but ultimately, you know, it's it's you know it's what you get with con gaming. Con, convention gaming can be wonderful. I've had some incredible things happen. Yes. Um, and I've had some really awful things happen. And you know, but for the most part, what I do is I just remember it's only four hours. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then I never have to see them again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your favorite book or supplement? Favorite book or supplement? Uh, Bonar's Tribe Book of, of the things I've written because uh, I got to control every aspect of it. I could I right. didn't I was given a complete blank slate. Nobody cared about the Bonars. They right. just wanted to make it they just wanted a book. Yes. So I got to do whatever I wanted. Cool. Um, an agency in a game company, when you're like, um, when you're having to put your work through a, a developer, then an editor, then a layout person, then an artist right. person, uh, you know, agency of any kind is like gold. That's yes. what that's what that's what motivates people inside of a company like that. And because nobody really gave a damn, <laughs> yes. I could do whatever I wanted, and so I got John Bridges to do an EC style comic in the, in, as the uh, 
opening comic for the book. Nice, nice. And, and I got, you know, I got to put characters in there that I love, and I got to talk in, you know, all these different dialects, and, that, I, you know, it, it was just a huge amount of fun. Now, as far as what book, what game book feeds my soul the most, like mm. what, you know, the, the one that I most... Uh, you know, when I go back, that I go back to, um, I go back to Amber Diceless. I read Amber Diceless sometimes just for the mind-blowing nature of the, the thought processes behind right. the text. I also, the same thing goes for, um, in a mythic or settings uh, sense, there was a book put out um, for Pendragon. It wasn't a Pendragon book. It wasn't a, it wasn't a mechanics book. Right, but it was a compendium of all the tropes and all the bits and pieces of all the Arthurian legends. It was put out by I think her name is Phyllis Ann Carr, right. and um, she I mean she wrote it and Chaosium published it. But um, and there's no stats in the whole book, but right. it does go deeply into the, some of the basic mythos of the Arthurian legends, and I right. love Arthurian legends, so that it, it does tend to feed my. You know, gaming creativity. Cool. So, is there anything coming out that you're looking forward to? Oh, um, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to what happens with Fake Core and Shadow of the Century. Um, I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Right. I'm looking forward to um, the, uh, the the future of all the Apocalypse World spinoffs. Right. Uh, that that's. Uh, a huge area that I'm looking at. Um, there's also, I mean, I, I have no interest at all in D and D next. I don't, I don't think I'll ever, I mean, the only reason I would ever go back to D and D for any reason at this point in time, I, I did have a, like a couple of weeks ago, I tried playing D and D again with a group of people right. um, online and yes. it just didn't work. Um, right. And, and part of that was that, you know, Attention spans have become very low, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. And and so I, I had a group of people, and they were all in, in Google Hand to hang out with me, and they were all also in a fourteen other different places. Right, right. And I do something. I'm focusing. Yes. If, if you hear any keyboard sounds, it's because my partner uh, uh, Tabitha over here, yes. and she's typing away. But other than that. I am not. I, when I do something, I, uh, you know, in a gaming sense, where I make a social contract to be there, and yes, focus, yes, I don't do anything else. Yes, yeah, that's that's, the, that's, that's the, in the social contract. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that's the kind of the blessing and the curse of the internet when it comes to the hangout, right? Like you can get a game, but then you've got this large gaping hole of of stuff right in front of you. That's you know that's. Uh, that's trying to attract your trying to attract your attention, and, and depending on the type of game that you you play, um, you know that it should, you know, require all of your attention and you know, like to be there and be to be invested. But that's just such a temptation, you know, the little things popping up and the phone going off and the little light flashing away and, and stuff like that. And that's that's something that I definitely need to uh, I need to get uh, need to get better at um, in a gaming sense is being more being more focused. Um, on what's, on what's mm-hmm. going on if I'm a player when I'm, when I'm telling the story then there's no then it's a different sort of thing altogether but it's very difficult I find sometimes when my character's not directly involved in the action and would have no 
and would have no knowledge of what was going on to stay to stay focused at that time. So yeah, my new year's re- my new year's resolution is uh, is to, to to stay more focused. Um, so how or often if you're not gonna, if you're not going to be focused, just be honest and say, look, I'm going to be away from keyboard for a little bit or whatever. Just just be straightforward with us. Sure. And uh, I mean, everybody has to be AFK. That's fine. But mm. you know, just just be honest. Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Okay. So. Um, what is the perfect number of people to role play? Uh, I kind of tip my hand by saying choose four people, but um, well, I, I do. I do like a four person, four players. That's pretty good. Three players is also good. Um, you know, and also one on one can be really, really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, that that does eat up story a great deal um, really quickly, mm-hmm. but it can be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the and also to be honest, uh, I did run a D and D campaign, um, you know, D and D with quotes around it, mm-hmm. um, uh, for about two years with twelve people. Wow! Now the thing of it, is, the the way that it worked is that we usually only got three or four people because they were all adults and they all had um, different schedules and. So, you know, we would run every Friday night, and it was a standing date. Mm-hmm. And so if you showed up, you got to play. And right. I had people call, like uh, a friend of mine, Elisa, would call and say, uh, is there going to be any fighting tonight? And right. if, there, if there wasn't, she wouldn't come. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Must smash! Elisa, smash! Yeah, Lisa was a she was a, a warrior, and so right. she wanted to, to have lots of fighting, and that, right. that's how she got you know that's what she liked. Right, sure. Um, so if there wasn't going to, if there was going to be a lot of talky talky, she didn't want to do it. Mm, right, uh, and that was okay with me because we had other people who were into that. Right, and, uh, you know, and we had people who did come to every session, and we had people who switched out, and that was fine too. Cool. But and and I, I had to create something in the fiction of the story to allow people to poof in and poof out. Right. Uh, once I did that, that was all doable. And the main the main difficulty was everybody showed up at once. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't you be less reliable? <laughs> yes. All twelve people shows up at once, and so like that was the the time when I I we switched to playing a war game almost in the middle of everything because I. Uh, you know, I wanted them to deal with the fact that the the city that they lived in were, was under siege. So right, cool. It's sort of a instant war game kind of thing. Mm, neat. Okay, so should males play females? And you can look take this in, in two different ways. It's really the question is about you know is a major part of role playing playing someone different than yourself, or are there really two different types of role playing? Well, I mean. I think you should play the character that, that speaks to you the most. And if, right. you, you, if you do, if you envision a character as female, you should play that character as female. I mean, I personally, I know from personal experience that human beings are blends of masculine and feminine. Hmm. Gender, gender is rarely a binary state. Right. Um, especially in our culture where, you know, nurturing of any kind is considered female. Yes. Um, you know, you're talking about taking care of your daughter a little earlier. Right. That would be a female, a female aspect to some people. Like, right. you know, macho men don't do that. But, yes. you know, it's part of you and you're, you're a dad. So, yes. you know, that, that is one of the most masculine things you can be, right? Right. So, I mean, ultimately, uh, you should play the character that is uh, in you to play. Now, the, 
the and and also I think the table needs to be accepting of that because one of the things about the table the rest of the people at the table you know I've seen it happen where somebody says I'm a female right then everybody continues to talk call the female him her him his he yes yep and that needs to be corrected yes. even if you have to do something like you put a little standy up card saying I'm a girl in right. front of you yep. whatever that's right um, it's because that's you know that's that needs to be respected in the fiction of the story yeah for sure um, yeah but uh, even more important to me uh, I I realized at the end of that two year long D&D campaign that mm-hmm. there were people in that game who we had not actually heard from not only what we know that their their gender was male mm-hmm. by dint of some art, but um, that they chose. But uh, we don't even know what their their sexual preference was. Like, right? Do they have, or do they have a a, a romantic interest of any kind? Or are they are they going to settle down and start a family now? Or what? You know, what the, what's the story? Mm-hmm. And that was shocking to me. Like we got to the end of the sto- uh, end of the game campaign, and we didn't know some of the most important things about these these characters and that's what really hit me in the face that you know we really need a game that also includes this even if people are not going to use it in the fiction even if they have a social contract at the table that says we're going to draw a veil over in sexual play right you know there still needs to be some you know it's part of the character and if you ignore that it's like saying well i mean it's just like ignoring rations you know yes it's, yep. it's fundamental. Right. And so do you think that there is catharsis available in, in role-playing? And, and I'm going to guess your answer ahead of time is going to be yes, because catharsis was mentioned a lot during, in, the, in the storyteller um, system. But um, for, you, for you personally, do you believe that catharsis is available, a genuine catharsis is available? Yes. Not only is catharsis available, uh, uh, um, allegory is available. Sure. Um, so is um, uh, a numinous experience. Mm. Yeah, uh, I've had numinous experiences in role-playing games where I felt like I was connected to something greater. Um, the way the game was working, um, I felt as though my perspective uh, on the universe was broadened. Um, I felt as though something true with a capital T was had happened. Right. Um, so yeah, catharsis is uh, completely available in role playing. In fact, uh, then the question is: Is your table going to support that? Right. Because um, there's a lot of tables out there who will just short circuit anything that gets close. To it. Um, you know, if you're if you're working through grief at the passing of your mother, and you know you have a character who's almost still alive and she dies in the course of play. Sure. Um, that's going to be a powerful thing for you. Yes. Um, but is everybody else going to be okay with that? I mean, they're going to support you. Are they going to, are they going to allow you to go over that cliff and, mm. and help, help you, uh, on the other side of that? Mm. That's, that's the big question. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, uh, that's, uh, you're into social contract territory again there, right? It's, uh, but there's always two yeah. social contracts. The first one is, um, are we just playing together? one night a week or are we actually friends and if we're friends then that's sort of incumbent upon you to support me in that fashion I don't think that you should yes. be drawing a line between 
this is the game we're playing right now. We don't want any of that stuff in there. Like, this is something that we do together as connected human beings. And so it should be okay to be to be part of it, right? Right. Well, yes, and, uh, although I do want to point out that catharsis is totally possible um, without any support. Um, mm. It's just better. It's just better with support. I mean, you can go to a movie and have catharsis. Yes. There's no. There's no. Um, you know. There's no. There's no. You don't have to agree with the guy next to you in the movie that you know when you see, you know this the the lanterns at the end of Entangled going up in the air and you know you feel that sense of connection with mm. uh, something. Deeper. You know that's powerful. Yes. For you, right. without having anybody else at the table understand that and all i want is just to trust the people at the table with me are not going to make fun of me or Mm. minimize it or or crack a joke to get away from it yes you know or or if we're gonna and that way if we're gonna draw a line or a veil let's let's talk about that and make that happen yeah instead of just doing it inside the fiction of the game yeah right yeah yeah being untrue in some respects to the character that you're playing like you should be able to be relied upon to be your character when you're playing the game, right? And then suddenly going, okay, well, we're not, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna blow this off, even though, even though in character, you know, that's a reasonable expectation that you're gonna go there, right? Well, yes. I mean, there's that gets into a certain area for me. One thing I wanted to say about that is that when you're playing and you want to do something that is against your normal character, I think you should be allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also don't. I also think that you shouldn't be a, a dick, essentially, and, and 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 in a group and say, "Well, my character would never do this, mm. so I'm going to completely throw a some sort of challenge down now because I don't want to do it yes. um, because my character would never do this." Right. Well, you know, the thing of it is, it's kind of incumbent upon you as a member of the group to think of a way to make that happen if you can. Um, and and because not every because people are very rarely so black and white as all that. Mm. Um, I mean, I know that you know in general. Do I believe in supporting the earth? Do I you know am I a big uh, green person? Yeah, I, I do believe in that. Now the question is, am I going to go out of my way to you know recycle every aluminum can that touches my lips? Probably not. Right. I have to be honest about that. It's 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 an, it's it's a bit uh, you know, it's a bit of a um, uh, of a contradiction. Right. But people are complex. They're not simple. They're not they're not just what someone to the character sheet. Mm. So it's important for for character for players to know that their characters can be just as complex. Right. Like you know, I am a paladin and I don't like any of this. Uh, you thieves are running a con, and I don't like it. But as long as I keep my mouth shut, the god is not going to be upset with me, and I'm just going to sit here and seethe while you do this. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And I might have to go and confess and atone after this, but you know, at the very least, I'll, I'll, as a player, I'm, I'm helping the group. As a character, I'm finding a way in the, in the fiction to continue. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and it's incumbent upon you, I think. You can't stop other people's fun by playing your character to the hilt. You know, that's that situation we were talking about earlier on where you kind of have to say, you know, am I going to just totally go for my character and to hell with everybody else's fun? Or whether you, like you say, you know, you say, well, this is what I'm going to do so that I can allow you to do what it is that you want to do. Right? It's a give and take sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, 
How do you prepare for a game session? Um, I, what I do is I listen to music. Um, right. I, uh, I will uh, take a hot shower. Um, and, uh, and, and somewhere in the middle of all that, I'll start to get an idea. Right. Uh, and then I'll write down some notes, mm-hmm. um, usually in a spot where, like on a, I have a lovely little app called um, Epistle on my phone, right. which uh, uh, interacts with Dropbox. So okay. I, create, I can create a note on uh, Dropbox, drop mm-hmm. it in my Dropbox, it'll show up on Epistle on my phone, and mm-hmm. suddenly I've got a ubiquitous access to that note. Right. Uh, which is really valuable for me because I, if I have it on a piece of paper, I'm going to lose it. Right, sure. Um, so this is how I cope. Right. Um, uh, so, and then I sit down at the table and uh, I am more, you know, it's just like what they say, what you're supposed to do about negotiation. You'd be willing to hear no mm-hmm. and go from there. Right. Um, so be, be willing to have your idea completely shot down or ignored but still bring that idea to the table and have it in the background. Um, I'm a big fan of sandboxing. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of there being a larger world going on that, that continues to move on while the player characters are doing whatever they're doing. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, in, I am not, if you don't, if you're supposed to go to the warehouse uh, and find the, the, the dude that is hidden in one of the crates mm-hmm. and you decide that that's not important to you, it's not going to cripple my game. Right. I'm just going to have, uh, you're going to hear about it in the news yesterday, uh, you know, the t- tomorrow in game, game day, there was a break-in uh, at the Third Avenue warehouse. Uh, many things were stolen, um, and a strange glowing re- residue was left on the floor there. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. The players may still not even totally investigate that. That's fine, yes. too. Yeah. Um. And then, you know, because at some point in the story, eventually they probably will run into what's creating or causing that situation. Or maybe they will never run into it. You have to be willing to say to yourself, Sam, this is just your, this is just your part of the game. Yes, yep. You, know, you can't be focused on that. Right, yeah. You can, don't drive them down the alley for sure. Okay, so what's the best and or most inspiring um, fiction uh, for you, uh, for a uh, for a role playing game right now, like something you watched and went, "Wow, that's really cool! I want to play a game that's like that right now." Or that book is so cool, I want to have a character that does this or that. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, Silken is that um, uh, the, the game Silken comes out of a lot of different game uh, books and situations. Uh, comes out of movies like um, uh, there, like like Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, mm. Comes out of um, there was a movie about uh, courtesans in Venice that I really loved. Um, Dangerous Beauty is what it's called. Right. Um, there was, uh, there's a series of, there, there's a lot of writers. Ellen Kushner wrote uh, a really wonderful book about a duelist right. in a fantasy sort of renaissance kind of situation. Right. Um, there's just a lot of fiction in that direction that I really enjoy. Um, and then on the other side of things is Dresden. You know, I've just gotten done reading all the Dresden novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I am primed to run a Dresden game. If I really, I, I'd love to get a group of people together to run Dresden. Yes. Um, because Dresden is not White Wolf. 
and no. address it is not world darkness. And I think it's very, very good for me as a game designer and as a writer mm-hmm. to break free out of those old tropes. Right. Um, to constant because you right now, even when I sit down and do writing, I, I started a novel. Uh, about a modern, in a modern standpoint, about a paranormal situation. Right. And I couldn't get out of the mindset of, okay, really what you're talking about is a mage here. Yes, really yep. yes. Or whatever. And, and so, you know, and I'm waiting. I'm, I've got that on the shelf, and I'm going to go back to writing mm-hmm. and, and finish that story because it does continue to talk to me even after many years after it's started. Yes. Um, but, you know, I'm way. I'm, I'm hoping that I can get myself free of those old mindsets as much, so that I can go into something else. And so, Dresden helps with that because it's so completely different than the world of darkness that it helps me break free of that paradigm. Right. And, you know, then you might say, well, but then you're going to be stuck in the Dresden paradigm. Well, <clears throat> I feel like the more paradigm jumping you do, the less stuck you are in any one in any one given paradigm. Sure. Yep, I can, I can buy that. And it probably doesn't help people getting you to talk about it on a podcast as well. So, so who's your favorite villain and why? My favorite villain um, is uh, the uh, really ultimately. I, I'm a big fan of villains who are heroes of their own story. Um, mm. You know, and there's a there's a sort of thread going through this. Uh, the, the villain in Serenity, the uh, operative. Right. Um, he, I mean, he was not a stupid villain. He was very intelligent. He did not fall for the old villain tropes. Hmm. He, was not, he was very much a planner. He was a believer. He completely believed in what he did. He acted as if what he believed was true. And uh, he was the hero of his own story, and that's my favorite. That that would be a, a good representation of my favorite villain. Um, another favorite villain, the in the uh, so you want to be a wizard books, Diane Duane writes. Uh-huh. There's a there is a um, the, the like the created the the creature that is essentially the representation of entropy in that storyline is a villain in the in the degree. It's like Satan almost. Right. Um, it's, it's called the Lost One. And the Lost One is, you know, effectively, there's a certain bit of sympathy for somebody, for a being who is on the outside of creation, who now only has the uh, destruction of creation as a, as a, uh, as a goal. Right. Uh, and they will never be in Diane Duane's version of Heaven, which is uh, the, the heart of time. Right. Uh, where um, you, you know, it, it's outside of essentially the love of, of, of the universe. Right. Uh, so, you know, that kind of thing, that's, that's a villain for you. I had a villain uh, in one of my werewolf games uh, who was a Tremere um, mage. Right. The Tremere, uh, sixth generation Tremere. And she seduced one of the werewolves in my game right. uh, uh, by going into her dreams. Mm. Uh, and over the course of time, you know, the player agreed, did wanted to kill her at first. Right. And slowly but surely, there was this situation where 
she began to sort of be attracted to her, much like we are, you know, attracted to Mo- as Moss of the Flame. You know, mm-hmm. we, sure. We, uh, that's, there's that self, uh, the impulse towards self-destruction. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and Anastasia, the name of the character, uh, the name of the villain, was very, very powerful. Um, and, and, and also the hero of her own story. So, yeah, that was. Cool. All right, so for all the marbles, Sam... Um, adding up to 100 assign points to reflect the relative importance of system, GM, and players. And you can put GM and players in together, or you can mix and match however you want here. But the relative importance of those sort of two ideas, or three um, ideas. Well, I, I'm going to say uh, 50-50, uh, ultimately. I mean, the, between players and GM. Player and GM, GM mix them together in system. System matters a great deal because of... For me, because if you're actually playing a game, uh, right. system matters. Now, if we, you and I are going to tell a story together. We can system doesn't have to matter at all. Right. Like I can get to know you, Daniel, and over the course of time, come to trust you re- with storytelling. And you and I can sit and st- tell a story to each other for all for hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about the game aspects of it. We're just going to continue to tell the story. Right. Uh, I did that with. Um, you know, an ex-partner of mine for over like 13 years. Right. We had a freeform game and we ran it all the time. Mm-hmm. And there was just uh, there was no need for rules or right. any kind of dice rolling. Sure. Um, every so often there was a situation where I would say, "Are you sure? Mm-hmm. You know, is this what you really, really want to? Is this how you want to go?" Right. But there were there would be times when we'd go back and re- redcon huge sections of you know. I realize I got to the end of this line of story, and I don't want—I don't like it anymore. Right. So can we do a retcon? Mm. That's the hardest thing ever, but you can do it. You can mm. accomplish it if you if you both are okay with that. Right. For sure. But but a, but retconning by itself, like retroactive retroactive condition, uh, is in and of itself ruinous. I feel to any game. Yes. No, I mean, I guess you could do a, a game mechanic for retconning, but it's it is such a jarring and destructive thing to do that mm. I, I prefer not to ever do it if I can possibly help. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Chuck. Thank you. That's it for episode forty-six of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the episode, Daniel at HazardGaming.com. If you'd like more information about the game or about the podcast, go to HazardGaming.com. If you'd like to buy the game, go to hazardgaming.com, click the Buy Victoria button and you can see several options there. There's Print On Demand, there's some first edition coloured covered versions and if you scroll all the way down on the right hand side to you across the field from where you enter your email address for the PDF, you'll find a secret link which will take you to a page where you can get the PDF for not $9.99 but just $6.99. In any case, next week's guest will be Josh Roby and until then, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.